Well, I trust you have your Bibles open at Luke chapter 2. As we begin, let me pray. Please join me. Father God, thank you that you've shown yourself to us and your son Jesus. Thank you that we can know this at Christmas. Uh, teach us now by your spirit. Uh, help us to listen. Take away our fears that we might surrender to you wholly and heartily. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've all seen the Christmas pageants where children make like the shepherds. Well, they put the dressing gowns on and they act the part and maybe they wrap a tea towel around their heads as well. If we've been part of Sunday school, we've done that. But have you ever considered the nativity scene and wondered what on earth the shepherds are doing there? Is it sentimental? Is it cutesy? Are we to think of a lovely pastoral scene and fluffy little lambs? Or are there other things that we can learn from this part of the nativity? We're going to look at the experience of the shepherds today and see what things that we can learn from these Christmas promises. And uh, the encouragement is that we do them. So what is the first thing? The first thing is verse 15. The angels have left the shepherds. They've gone into heaven. The shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. And you right now might be going, yeah, the first thing the shepherds did was to go. No. No, they, firstly, they heard about Jesus, didn't they? They heard about Jesus from angels and then they went to see from themselves. Uh, we cannot underestimate the necessity of hearing. You know what it's like when you're talking to somebody and the other person is uh, on their phone, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and you wonder if they're there and you feel like sometimes you want to give them a shake. Are they there? Are they talking or they seem distracted? Uh, are they listening? There's no eye contact. It's, it's just rude, isn't it? Uh, but we've all seen it. Uh, in our marriages, oh, yep, in our marriages isn't the most frequent failure to really, really listen to each other. I have to be careful here. I mean, how, how often has it been said, we talked about this, didn't we decide? And then the answer right back might be, well, we talked, but for one or for both, it doesn't sink in. And the implications are lost. There's hearing, but there's not hearing. And yep, guilty, guilty. Uh, and this is not a, not a thing for us here in terms of our faith. Now, this is Chris, Christmas lesson number one. Plenty of people, they think they've heard the message. They've heard the Sunday school stories. But you've got to wonder, have they heard it in such a way as to understand the implications in such a way that has a bearing on their life? Now, Romans 10 verse 17 says something about hearing. It says, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word about Christ. Our society, we suffer from uh, attention deficit disorder. As a society, we do, for sure. Remember this? Yeah, here's proof. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We have attention deficit disorder. It's super easy for us not to hear this, the word of God. Because, like, well, one reason is because of the way it comes to us. I mean, think about it. The shepherd's got an angel and the heavenly host. Of course they were listening. But what do we get? We get Bible. 
words on a page and so many words and so many pages. Uh, throw in, if you're part of a church family, a flawed preacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's nowhere near as spectacular as a heavenly host. But the medium is not the message. We don't get to ignore God's promises just because the preacher might be dull or unimpressive or whatever, whatever other hang-up you might have. You don't get to do that. Our question should never be, was it entertaining or engaging? Our question has to be, is it true? And so just as hearing but not hearing is bad in a marriage and friendship and any other context, so too it follows with our relationship with God. We cannot be hearing but not really hearing. The scriptures contain great treasures, more precious than gold and silver, the book of Psalms tell us, so don't miss out on the treasure. Take God's word to heart. Let it affect us deeply. That's the first Christmas encouragement. Heed the word of God, take it to heart. Simple, we keep moving on. The second encouragement is peace. Peace. Christmas time is a time we long for peace. And peace turns up in verse 14 as the angels sing about it. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to, the, to, the, to those on whom God, God's favour rests. Okay, what kind of peace, Adam? Well, he's not talking about a trouble-free life where, you know, health, wealth, prosperity and everything's easy. He's not talking about that kind of peace. When the Bible speaks about peace, it's nearly always about our peace with God. Now, this is a thing because the human heart wants to be king. We remain committed to the idea that the only way we will be happy is if we are wholly in charge of our lives. And if I'm in charge of me, that puts me at odds with who? <laughs> it puts you at odds with everybody else that wants to be king and in control and in charge of their life. Because you all want to be king. We all want to be king, I should say, which means conflict with God, the one true king, that's there and that only leads to hostility with others. There is no peace on earth because there's no peace with God. But the proclamation of Christmas, however, is God and sinners reconciled. Jesus, then, is the perfect mediator. In Jesus, God becomes man. And the God-man chasm is bridged as he dies for our sins. He heals the broken relationship. He makes peace. So how can we have this peace for ourselves? You want peace? First step, recognise this conflict. That the things I do, whether bad or even the good things, have really only been self-serving. Anything good I do is just to serve myself. They're really about asserting my independence from God. And so I need to be saved by grace. That's what we need to do. That's the first step. We need to be saved by grace because even the right things I do are for the wrong reasons. I need to rest wholly on Jesus' saving work on my behalf. And when we rest in what the Lord has done and turn away from I'm the king of me, I do what I want, then we have true peace with God. 
It's why Christians should be in the business of not making war and not cultivating offence and not cultivating anger. They should be in the business of peace with other people. Christians are peace lovers, not war mongers. Peacemakers, having made peace with God, admit flaws and weaknesses. They can swallow their pride. They know how to love without controlling every situation. And so Christians should be agents of reconciliation. So Christmas means that through the grace of God and the incarnation, God becomes man, peace with God is possible. And if you make peace with God, then you can go out and make peace with everybody else. It's beautiful. And the more people that embrace the gospel and do that, the better the world is. It follows. So what does the world need? world needs Jesus and his gospel. Christmas then should mean more peace, not less peace, both with God and between people across the world, which brings us back to the shepherds, right? Because they, they lack peace in this story, don't they? Uh, did, you see, did you see it in uh, verse 10? And the angels say, don't be afraid. Uh, and then what? If, if they accept the good tidings, do not be afraid, I bring you good news, good tidings, or that's quite literally, I bring you the gospel, um, it should end fear. We should fear not. Why? Well, the, the verse pride does say that they were terrified, doesn't it? Uh, in verse 9, sounds right, we would be too, but think again a bit more. In the Bible, people always experience traumatic fear when they get near God. Have a think. Garden of Eden. Was there fear there at first? As God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve, as they enjoyed a relationship with the loving Lord of, the, of the, all of the creation, they had no fear. They're not characterised by fear at all. I mean, if you enjoy God's presence and you're filled with God's love, are you ever going to care what anybody else thinks? Are you going to care about rejection and failure? Maybe you fear the future or you fear uh, particular circumstances that lie ahead for you this coming year. But if you know God and you know that God is good and that he rules, why don't you trust him through that? And death. You wouldn't be afraid of death because you'd know you'd be with him forever. So, But we know how the story goes. We know humanity is so clever, we choose the opposite. We go the other way. We choose to throw off God's rule in our lives, which breaks our relationship with God, our loving creator, broken. And so we become filled with what? With fear and even terror. Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 to 10. You can read it there. See, do we see that Satan's lie has entered our hearts? It's a big lie that says God doesn't know what's good for you. Only you do. Or that God doesn't know what makes you happy. Only you do. And that's a lie that's been passed down to every human heart and every generation. And it's a lie that produces fear, particularly a fear of trusting God. See, we might think peace is all about being in control of your life, 
beholden to no one, but that's exactly why we're constantly afraid, because you can't control your life. We're powerless. And so, see the shepherds experience terror, verse 9, before the angels, not just because it's weird, it's it's because they're in the presence of the holy every time. Every appearance in the Bible, humans are radically threatened by the appearance of the holy. Here it's no different. God's holiness appears. And as his holiness appears, his otherness is highlighted and our alienation from that shouts loudly. But what does the angel say? The angel says, don't, don't. <laughs> don't what? Don't be afraid. It's how? Look, look at verse 10. The angel says, do not be afraid. I bring you good news. I bring you the gospel. I bring you good tidings that will cause great joy for all people. Actually, quite literally, uh, that line, do not be afraid. In some translations, it, it, it says, don't be afraid. Behold, lo, look. Look at what? Look at the gospel. Look at the good news that I'm bringing you. Don't be fearing, be looking. Here's the gospel. That's the idea. Look and you won't be afraid. It's the solution, the antidote to fear. And so here is an invitation again to comprehend, to consider, to hear the gospel message, to look at it. And as you comprehend it, see it remove the fear the dark, and the darkness of our lives. To the degree that we behold the gospel, to the degree that we grasp or rejoice in the gospel, to that degree the fears of our life will be undermined. So what is the gospel at which we must gaze, Adam? Well, the angels tell you a saviour is born. If you want to get over your fear and rejection and failure and be filled with his love, if you want to be completely forgiven and lay down the burden of self-justification, if you want to lay all of that down, then you have to rest in him as your saviour. Fear is always going to haunt us and overwhelm us when we're trying to save oneself when we try to earn our own sense of worth or construct our own identity, fear is never far away. And then there's that greatest fear, the greatest fear of surrender. How can we trust God with our lives? Well, the answer is the baby in the manger is mighty Christ our Lord. And so think. If the omnipotent Son of God would radically lose control and take on all all that is human risk, that God would do that all for you, surely you can trust him. Surely you can trust him. In 1961, the Russians put the first man into space and apparently the Russian Premier and the astronauts took great delight. They said, we've made a discovery There's no God, he's not up there. C.S. Lewis responded, If there is a God who created us, we could not discover him by going up into the air. God would not relate to a human being the way that man on the second floor relates to a man on the first floor. He would relate to us, grab this, he would relate to us the way Shakespeare relates to Hamlet. 
Shakespeare is an author and creator of Hamlet's world and of Hamlet himself. Hamlet, he can know about Shakespeare only if Shakespeare shows himself in the play. And so too, the only way to know about God is if God shows himself to the world and to the nativity scene. It's incredible. The claim of Christmas is infinitely wonderful because God didn't merely write information about himself and give it to us. He wrote himself into the drama of history. He came into the world as Jesus Christ to save us and to die for us. And so the invitation is to look, to behold. Won't you trust somebody who did all of this for you? Won't you trust the God, the creator who did this for you, that the maker was made for you such as his love? Why don't you trust him? Why don't you trust him more than you do today? Why don't you heed his word? Why don't you pick up the Bible? Why don't you read it? Why don't you do what it says? Why don't you promote peace? Why don't we surrender? The angel says, don't be afraid. Behold, look, lo. You want relief from the fears of this world? Because there are many. Look at Christmas. Look at Jesus. Look at what he did. And to the degree you behold it and grasp it and take it to heart, to that degree our fears dissipate. So fear not. Behold. Look in the town of David. A saviour is born to you. He is Christ. He is King and Lord. And that is good news. So trust him. Happy Christmas.